This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, we've got an amazing double-length interview with author Naomi Novik about her new fantasy novel, Uprooted. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. You're light on fiction? We're light on fiction. Um, the, the first debut, the first new book on the list is uh, down at number seven uh, at one, two, three, four, five, six. We have exactly the same one, two, three, four, five, six oh. that we had last yeah. week. Uh, nothing especially new or exciting there. But moving down to the newer books, uh, at number seven, we have The Forgotten Room by mm-hmm. Lincoln Child. It's a sequel to The Third Gate, which came out in 2012. So readers have been waiting a while for this one. Uh, obviously, Child is a, a best-selling thriller author, and uh, this is you know, just as much of a chilling story as one would expect. Uh, we say that he makes the most of his creepy setting, which is a, a mansion in Newport, Rhode Island, and uh, also uses an unusual lead character to uh, really influence the intricate plot. So that's The Forgotten Room at number seven. And at number eight... Uh, Craig Johnson with Dry Bones. This is the 11th Walt Longmire novel. Um, this is one of those books that's like right on the mystery thriller border, I think. And uh, Walt Longmire is a Wyoming sheriff. He's, this time he's investigating the murder of a Cheyenne rancher, trying to figure out whether he died of natural or unnatural causes. Uh, and we say this steadfast character never disappoints the reader. He's a hero through thick and thin. Uh. And uh, moving down a little bit, at number 12, we have Solitude Creek by Jeffrey Deaver. We give this a starred review. Uh, it's featuring Catherine Dance, who's a California Bureau of Investigation kinesics expert. Uh, so she let a suspect escape during an interview and winds up assigned to the civil division where she's dealing with a false fire alarm. But uh, meanwhile, she's trying to follow up on that suspect who got away and see if he can lead her to some people who are smuggling drugs and guns across the southern border of the U.S. We say that Deaver's meaty thrillers are as good as they come. So this Great. is definitely one to keep an eye yeah. out for. And uh, finally, just moving down a little bit to number 19 is Luckiest Girl Alive by Jessica Null. Uh, We say this is really a a knockout debut novel in which one woman's carefully orchestrated perfect life slowly cracks. And uh, this is set in contemporary New York. There's a a woman who left behind her suburban Philadelphia roots to Mm. reinvent herself for the big city. She's got a successful, wealthy fiancé. Uh, but uh, once a documentary is made about a school shooting that happened at her prestigious private school, lots of dark secrets come to light. We say that what sets this novel apart is the author's ability to snare the reader from page one, setting the tone for a completely enthralling read as secrets are revealed. 
that's what we've got on the fiction list. Great. How about over in nonfiction? Well, so uh, number six debuting is uh, Tom Brokaw. He was best known for his uh, as the anchor of NBC Nightly News, but also the best-selling author of The Greatest Generation. And here, uh, in A Lucky Life Interrupted, A Memoir of Hope, um, he, he he talks about his year of change, which was basically spent battling cancer and reflecting on his long, happy, and uh, what he calls his lucky life. So that's at number six. And uh, moving down to uh, number 11 is My Fight, Your Fight by Ronda Rousey. This is from uh, Reagan Arts Publishers. She's the uh, Olympic medalist uh, in judo, and she's the reigning UFC women's bantamweight champion. Um, and also she's in Hollywood, she's in films. So, um, and here we, uh, the, uh, according to the pub, uh, material, we don't have a review of this one yet. It says marked by her signature charm, barred wit and undeniable power. Rousey's account of the toughest fights of her life reveals the painful loss of her fa- father when she was eight years old. So, and, and that just was what got her into judo training. Um, at number 16, uh, we have Hold Still, a memoir with photographs. This is by photographer Sally Mann. Uh, we talked about this in uh, last week's show, and this is at number 16 on, on the list. We gave it a star review. We say the vivid descriptive energy and arresting images in this impressive book will leave readers breathless. So wow. not surprising this on the charts. At number 17, just one notch down, is the quartet orchestrating the second American Revolution, 1783 to 1789. This is by uh, veteran historical history writer Joseph J. Ellis. And here, few can tell, historical tell as well as Ellis, as many readers will be aware from his eight previous studies of the Revolutionary War era. Uh, In the end, it says, uh, you know, it it lacks the fresh interpretations and almost lyrical prose of Ellis's previous books, but it's a readable, authoritative work. And finally, this is at number 34. This is The Journey Home, My Life in Pinstripes by Jorge Posada, a Yankees catcher from 1995-2012. And this is at number 34. Um, I was surprised that this wasn't a little bit higher, debuting a little bit higher, since usually books by or about Yankees uh, players usually sell pretty well. I mean, always on the bestseller list, not always, but uh, the big ones are. And we say this one, Posada emerges as a dedicated and hardworking player, a loyal friend, a committed father and husband and always and forever a Yankee. In this often, we say, inspiring, occasionally dry memoir, Posada calls the innings of his life play-by-play from his childhood in Puerto Rico and his days playing junior college ball in Alabama to his early days in the Yankees Farm Club. So, number 35, and that's nonfiction. All right. Well, there's there's definitely a built-in audience for those Yankees books. Right. Um, and uh, it'll be interesting to see whether that one maybe creeps up the list. Yeah, right, right, exactly. A little bit. You know, I have no idea what's going on with baseball yeah the, the yankees are um are, are doing well enough so so we'll see how the season goes <laughs> so maybe you know every every time they win a game the book will pop up the list a little bit yeah see how the season goes this summer i'm rose fox and i'm mark rotella and this is publishers weekly radio next up naomi novik tells us about spinning fairy tales into gold we'll be right back i'm kabir segel author of coined and you're listening to publishers weekly radio I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Naomi Novik in the office with us. Her new book is Uprooted. Hello, Naomi. So glad you could join us. Hello. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. So you're known for writing alternate history, and in this book, you did something a little bit different. You 
created a kind of Polish fairy tale. Give us a quick rundown of what the book's about. So Uprooted actually began as kind of my impulse to write a story about a completely different kind of dragon. I've been writing the Temeraire series, which has very realistic sort of dragons set in the Napoleonic Wars, and it tries to be very faithful to the history precisely because I want those dragons to feel real, and I want them to feel real in the context of this kind of um, massive battlefield. And in Uprooted, I actually wanted to kind of go back to some of my own personal roots as a reader, um, which is in more fantastical universes. I grew up reading Tolkien mm-hmm. and Robin McKinley, um, Patricia McKillop, Ursula Le Guin. And basically, I feel that for me, that's a very natural sort of that's a very natural place to write from um, those those authors that kind of a universe where magic exists and not just magical creatures for instance mm-hmm. so I very much wanted to write that kind of fantasy I've always had that kind of fantasy in me in a way and I just happened to have the idea for this story I wrote the first line while I was procrastinating from writing a temporary book and I started writing um about this dragon who turns out to not actually be a dragon, turns out to be a wizard. And the narrator very quickly kind of made herself known to me. Um, Her voice came very clearly. And after, I would say, around the first 10, 15,000 words, I realized it was set in in a sort of fantastical version of Poland. Mm. And why Poland? I grew up on Polish fairy tales. Um, My mother is Polish, Mm -hmm. and my father has lived in Poland for much of his life. And when I was little, we spoke Polish at home. Really? Yes. uh, Polish was actually my first language, I believe. Um, I was equally fluent until about five. Mm -hmm. And my mother would read to me um, in Polish. She read Polish books to me, Polish fairy tales, um, sort of half-legendary historical stories from Poland. She would um, sing me Polish lullabies. And this was part of her way of staying connected to her own roots. Um, she, she actually had to defect to stay in this country. Um, she'd come to this country as a visiting professor on a short-term visa. And um, when she decided to stay here with my father, she decided she, she was forced to defect. And she really kind of had to cut ties at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, this was the height of the Cold War, and it really was very hard for her. So I think that kind of keeping me connected um, to Poland, reading those stories was part of her way of staying connected to her past and right. to what she still felt was her home. And was there is there anything kind of typical about uh, Polish fairy tales that might set them apart from other fairy tales? Um, you know, one particular characteristic that I think is not just about Polish fairy tales, um, but sort of Polish culture more broadly, is specifically the relationship with the wood, mm. um, the forest. In, um, in a lot of sort of Polish culture, the forest is a place of kind of nourishment. It's a warm, safe place. Uh, it's a place that's, that's very powerful, but also um, somehow a good place for people mm-hmm. as well. Um, in a lot of sort of fairy tales, like the grim fairy tales, a lot of times the wood is that that dark, frightening right. wood. 
Um, and so I think you can see in Uprooted that I've tried to meld both of these traditions in, that the woods and that sort of nature more broadly and a connection to the land, to sort of a wilderness specifically and not just to farmland, um, are extremely important in this book. And that's a theme that um, how that can get perverted and corrupted and how you fix that corruption right. um, are strong elements of the book. So tell us a little bit about the, the core story of the book itself. So the story begins, and it's very hard for me. In fact, we had, a, we had a lot of trouble coming up with a jacket copy for this book because I really didn't want to spoil it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's out now, so I feel a little bit less bad about spoiling things. But um, the book starts with a girl, our narrator, who's a young woman, 17 years old, and her name is Agnieszka. And she lives in a small village in this valley that is very close to... a. As, as terrifying a fairy tale would as you can imagine. Um, it is full of evil magic and corruption and monsters who routinely come out and threaten not only her immediate village, her, her home, but threaten the country that she lives in as a whole. And there's a powerful wizard who is essentially the lord of her particular part of the country called the dragon. And he is generally accepted to be the most powerful wizard in the kingdom. There are only a handful. And he has been set there, and his duty is to basically protect the kingdom from this wood. And so he is also, from Agnieszka's perspective, at the beginning of the book, she's you know quite a young village girl. He is the protector of her community, but he exacts a price. And that is that once every 10 years, he takes a girl from the surrounding villages, um, always one who's 17 years old, and he basically just has the villagers herd together these girls for him and he, whatever eligible girls, and he takes one of them and takes her off to his tower, where she spends the next 10 years serving him. And at the end of this 10 years, these girls never really come home again. Um, they don't die, nothing sort of nothing sort of grotesquely horrible happens. They just don't want to stay at home. They've changed too much during their time in this tower and they leave. And, um, Hmm. and so this basically being taken by the wizard, by the dragon essentially means being severed from your home, being taken away from your home and your family. And it's a source of great distress obviously, for the families. And Agnieszka is one of the girls who is eligible to be taken, as well as her best friend, Kasia. And essentially, the story is what happens um, at the time of this choosing. And from there, it goes on to a kind of confrontation with the wood. And, um, and Agnieszka obviously has a major role to play in that, in that whole process. There's been a lot of conversation recently uh, about uh, concepts of sexual assault uh, and and rape in fantastical fiction, partly because Game of Thrones is sort of right. putting it right there front and center, um, but also just part of a broader conversation that's happening right now. One of the first things that, that Agnieszka says, I think it's on the first page of the book, is that these girls go away and then, of course, they're ruined because they've lived in this tower with a man for 10 years. Um, tell us a little bit about how you you worked with that as a as a concept as a thing that everyone is thinking about but not necessarily talking about. Well, you know, I very much it, it was it was 
you know, it's one of those delicate balancing acts when you're writing in a historical period. Um, you know, Agnieszka and the villagers, um, you know, and this is quite important generally in the story, they don't really think of the dragon as one of them. They don't think of him as a person. He's, he's sort of this creature who's living on another plane of existence. Um, and I think that he himself thinks of himself that way. And so do, for instance, many of the nobility, um, which I feel is correct for the period. And so there isn't, you know, it's not that she thinks of the dragon as we would think of as a modern, you know, rapist in a way. It, she almost thinks of it as a matter of course that he thinks that they're all his property to a certain extent. Um, and so, and she's afraid of it. She's obviously, she, she fears that experience. Um, she fears it more for her best friend at first, but then of course fears it for herself. Um, and it was it was to me important to kind of um nevertheless illustrate that despite that mindset um that it, of course consent is actually sort of a real thing that matters um and just because your culture says it's okay for this person for 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 a person of such status to do this to you doesn't doesn't make it any better and doesn't actually change the the act from within um and i knew that i did not actually want it to happen, um, that, you know, I, I think that um, it, it's obviously something that they would sort of assume and kind of be prepared for in the same way that you'd be prepared for like a terrible, something else really bad happening to you um, and kind of ready to endure it, not wanting it, um, but trying to face it in a kind of, um, in a courageous way. And and at the same time, um, I didn't want to, you know, I think that a lot of times the problem that I find with, with the use of sexual violence in a lot of mainstream media is that it's almost kind of used to titillate. Um, it's, it's sort of as you can't actually let people just have sex and enjoy it, um, right. especially women frequently are not allowed to just say, I, I want to have sex. Um, and enjoy it, you almost have to have rape in there. There almost has to be violence in it to excuse it happening. Um, and and I find that just sort of terrible and, and kind of grim and sad. Um, and so I wanted to, I wanted to make it, I wanted to treat it with respect um, without also necessarily making it something, um, what's the right word? Not routine, um, but just something that that of course they would be thinking about and afraid of, but not sort of driven by completely. Mm. If that, that makes sense. That does make a lot of sense. And what can you tell us about the dragon slash wizard? So the dragon is a character who has essentially no roots whatsoever. Mm. Um, that's that's kind of the key. That he has almost completely severed connection with other people. Um, that he, in fact, actively avoids connection for various reasons with the people that he's ruling over in the valley. Mm. Um, but even more broadly, he is more than 100 years old. Um, wizards in this universe live a fairly unspecified amount of time. Um, and as we see with Baba Yaga's um, brief appearance, their lifespans are not necessarily a limit to when they can appear in time. Um, but he... And he has been changed, um, and he never had very much roots to begin with, very many roots to begin with. 
um, and essentially is sort of almost completely a figure of um, scholarly achievement, of power. He, he identifies himself as a wizard and thinks of himself as a person of power, and that is the key for, him, for his own sort of self-identification. And he, I think he would think of himself and does think of himself as a, um, as a good person in the sense that he is a protector and he believes in justice and trying to do things and trying to do just things. He actually would not ever, he, he has no desire actually to, to rape the girls he takes and does not do so. Um, and but at the same time, he is almost oblivious to um, he he does not really consider feelings very much. He doesn't consider his own feelings, um, doesn't consider the feelings of others, very much thinks of himself as too busy to be bothered in a certain way, um, thinking about, you know, all those boring, squishy emotions. And I think that he is, um, you know, that we see that that. It's sort of not just that he is an important um, and powerful and ultimately good figure, um, but he's not necessarily a nice guy, mm. especially at the beginning. Um, he is not, he's essentially lost a certain element of his humanity. And that's part of the themes in Uprooted about how losing your roots, how losing mm. your connections to sort of nature, to other people, um, sort of draws you away from humanity and makes you lose something in yourself. You've mentioned Jane Austen as an influence. Is he a little bit of a, of a Darcy figure? He's a little bit, you know, I think I personally, um, I personally actually really quite like the depiction, um, the interpretation of Darcy as, um, really painfully shy Mm. um, where he, he's extremely proud, but it's sort of, there's an awkwardness to him that I, that I think is nice. And that, is what makes him actually a, a really quite warm, appealing partner for for Elizabeth Bennet then right. um, in Pride and Prejudice. That's one of the things that I that I like um, that he's not just the sort of he's not actually he can be depicted as looking Byronic, but he's not actually a Byronic hero. The Byronic hero is a jerk, <laughs> um, and uh, and I think the dragon is a little bit more. Um, he he's first of all much more cerebral. Hmm. Um, but I think he's also more remote and he's not shy. He just doesn't care in a way. But but I did, I mean, I, I obviously I do sort of think of him as, as, a, um, as a bit of a romantic hero um, at the same time, but not quite Darcy. I'm not sure who I would map him to exactly. So relationships between women are very central to the story. There's Agnieszka's friendship with Kasia, uh, her relationship with her mother, and also Kasia's relationship with her mother, which we sort of get glimpses of. Um, and uh, also the way that Agnieszka learns from the work of other female magicians and how she feels connected to that tradition. Uh, and there's also a later scene where she struggles to fit in with female society in the capital city, which is very different from what she grew up with. So what what led you to incorporate all of those elements into the book? Um, you know, it was, it just actually sort of happened quite naturally. You know, I think that um, women, a lot of times women tend to be around other women, um, especially at this period in time. Women spent a lot of time with other women. In, obviously, in fact, the segregation of, of gender roles 
was stronger and and meant that you know if you were if you were doing the work that was women's work you were typically doing it with other women around you um and similarly in society obviously women were typically chaperoned away from men and and sort of speaking with men and so having a female protagonist i think unless you sort of make an effort to do the opposite often oftentimes leads naturally to having a lot of other women around her. Um, uh, Of course, a lot of times it's quite hard to find a female protagonist in a sort of fantasy adventure story who is in a way having adventures, um, who has not, who is not doing it by almost taking on a male role and therefore ending up in sort of the male half of society. You know, you get, you get the one female warrior. Um, you get the, you know, in my own books, we have, I have female dragon riders, female captains, but they are, you know, the, the, the extremely small minority among the general body of aviators in the Temeraire books. Mm-hmm. And so as a result, you, have less interaction between women. Um, but in this book, Agnieszka, and, and in fact, it was one of the things that I quite liked about what I was writing as I was working on it, which is that Agnieszka, um, it, it's not that Agnieszka sort of defies all society, all her societal roles, her traditional roles. Um, they are quite important to her. And she, in fact, quite likes sort of the work of like, you know, you know, a lot of what she likes to do, she likes to go out into the woods and do gleaning, but she also likes to um, do things at home. She, she doesn't sort of think disparagingly of traditional women's work in the time. Um, and of course, in her society, in her village, there were no idle hands. You know, everybody's work was important and contributing to the, to the household as a whole. But so Agnieszka um, quite naturally ended up sort of collecting women, and I think quite naturally would go to women um, and reach out to women herself. That would sort of be her instinct. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors. And conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Naomi Novik, author of Uprooted, who's telling us fascinating things about this book. Uh, So let's uh, get a little bit more into your story. You were born in Long Island. You now live in New York City, but your books have been set all over the world. Uh, How has growing up and living in New York influenced your work? Well, I mean, New York is obviously a kind of gateway to the world um, in many ways. It it makes so many options available to you, makes so many cultures accessible to you just within the boundaries of the city, just in terms of, you know, simple things like food, um, art, music. You, you can get um, all of that. You can find people from different cultures here just routinely. And that's, I, I think that sort of makes it... Um, has always made me interested in a broader mm-hmm. and also just being the child of immigrants. You know, my parents both came here as adults. They were both in their 30s and they had a lot of experience of um of Europe and in the wars. Um they both also traveled a lot in Europe. They spoke many languages and they 
instilled in me a respect for other cultures and you know in fact for instance my mother would often talk to me talk to me about the um the italian and french influences on polish culture um frequently there was um i'm misremembering i believe there was an italian princess who married one of the earlier polish kings and so polish court society became quite influenced by um by italian dress and hmm. and food for a while and these were things that for my mother were very positive you know the that free flowing interchange of cultures um and obviously then there was the negative side which was the occupation of poland um during the war and then the influence the soviet domination of Poland afterwards which were enormous negatives for her and so that um that really kind of formed the foundation for me of thinking of myself more broadly as not just a citizen of the United States but as sort of a citizen of the world more broadly and I've always, I was encouraged, you know, growing up speaking two languages, I think has made it easier for me to learn other languages. I've studied about seven or eight mm. and I really enjoy learning other languages and I enjoy going to other countries and I've tried to do as much of it as I could. You know, the Temeraire series, at one point I had an idea that I was going to do one book set in each continent. And that didn't work out because it felt it, it felt artificial. I was, I was like sticking something. I was trying to stick a box around something that was not meant to go in that box. Mm -hmm. So I gave up the idea. But I do, I did very much want and enjoy um, showing in the Temerer books a different kind of human dragon society at basically every turn and exploring that. And I've tried to root that in the culture and history and dragon legends of different cultures around the world. So you you then later went to uh, Brown, where you studied English literature, and then to Columbia, where you got your master's in computer science. How does technology show up, you know, how, how does it show up in your fantasy novels? Uh, you know, it's interesting. It shows up, It's it happens on a meta level, um, which is I, you know, I actually came to... Um, my route was quite circuitous. I went, I was going to be a journalist when I first went to college. Um, and then I, my senior year, I fell in love with, I, I found the internet, which was, it was very <laughs> fortunate that I'd taken many, many credits more than I needed before then, because I'm not sure if I would have graduated on time otherwise. Um, but, uh, but I found a habit called mushing. Um, which is multi-user shared hallucination. And it's basically an online role-playing sort of D&D-esque text adventure where you build the environment at the same time as you act out stories in it. And I basically taught myself to program because I wanted to do role-playing games in this environment. And, you know, instead of writing out a campaign on pencil and paper, you actually sort of built the rooms and then you can move your characters through the rooms. Wow. You know, and um, so I, I essentially started falling in love with computer game programming at that time and decided that I really kind of wanted to go back to school, get a computer science degree and start working on computer games. And in the meantime, while I was working on my computer science degree, I started I was also writing fan fiction as a hobby. And so I was I was coding um, you know, essentially for work and writing as a hobby. And then at one point, I actually had the chance 
to work on a computer game. Um, I got the opportunity to work on Neverwinter Nights Shadows of Undertide, which was an expansion set. And I got to, um, they needed a programmer. One of the, my friends was a designer who was the lead designer on this small team that was doing this expansion set. And they kind of needed a programmer and a designer. So they said, you know, let's bring you on as a programmer and you'll get to work on the design. And there were only three of us designing this. And, and you know, my personal friend was the lead designer. So he allowed me, he, he gave me a lot of free reign. And essentially I got an act to develop. Um, and we worked on the structure. Uh, you know, having to build a computer game, it's not just a sort of, it's not the same quite as writing something because you have to decide certain things far in advance so that the artists can build the cinematics for the story at the same time as you're actually writing the whole story. So you had to plan it out a lot more. We had to build a skeleton of the story. We had to figure out, okay, what are our big beats going to be? And then as we were working, we could embellish it and right. develop the characters. And that process, for some reason, um, unlocked kind of my engineering brain where it came to writing. And that was the point at which I started writing novel-length work. Uh, literally, I got done with Shadows of Undertide, went home, and I think three months later, I sat down and started writing Temeraire. And before then, I'd... You know, it's I, my fan fiction was always sort of like, you know, a thousand words, five thousand words. A long story for me was ten thousand words, really long. And I don't, I don't even know if I wrote any ten thousand word stories before two thousand four. Um, and then it was really funny. Like I sort of wrote, um, I I'd shortly, I'd pr just shortly before then finished the computer game, and there was like a. 5,000 word story, a 9,000 word story, a 12,000 word story, an 18,000 word story, and then I wrote Temeraire. And it literally was just sort of like, you know, my friend says, uh, you can sort of see the curve going up. Um, and I think it's because I had suddenly gained the ability to do the kind of structuring in my head. Um, because, the, you know, there are some writers who can actually go ahead and outline a book really thoroughly, plot it all out beforehand, and then sit down and write it from start to finish. I'm really not good at that. Um, I, the problem for me is once I know everything about the story, I'm like, well, I don't need to write it. <laughs> I know what's going to happen. <laughs> it doesn't matter if nobody else does. Um, and that doesn't actually work when you want to publish it, sadly. <laughs> so I, um, you know, now I actually, um, I've, I've gotten into doing a little more outlining, but I still do it at a very sketchy level. And I tend to throw out big chunks of my outline and redo them as I go. And it's um, because I like discovering, I like discovering a story as I tell it to myself. But apparently, but I've managed to figure out some way um, to bring that kind of engineering process into the process of writing. And in fact, more broadly for me, um, you know, those two actions, um, programming and writing, are not actually that different. To me, they are both different ways of, of achieving the same thing, which is producing a work. Mm -hmm. When I code, you know, I am not generally compelled 
by um, by sort of the the challenge of an individual piece of code or wanting to work with some particular programming language. Um, you know, I've worked with whatever programming language I happens to be around at the time. I always have to want something at the end. I have to want the end product. Mm. Um, and similarly with a book, I have to want that end story. And there generally has to be a kind of narrative involved in it. That's why I wanted to work on computer games. I didn't want to just, you know, I didn't want to go online and program advertising software right. um, or something like that. I wanted to build something that was essentially a vehicle for telling stories um, that would allow me to tell stories better. So tell us a little bit about the Organization for Transformative Works and the Archive of Our Own. Well, yes, the so, uh, Archive is um, one, of those, one of those things that I really wanted. And so I um, actually what originally happened was, I'm trying to remember what year this was. This was a while ago now. It was 2009. Um, it was sooner than that, I guess, because the Archive was started in 2009. I think in like 2007 or so, um, I basically, inspired by um, the attempt for, of a venture capital funded company to come into the fan fiction archiving space for their own profit, um, and inspired by various things that I saw happening on other social media sites like LiveJournal um, and fanfiction.net, which host fan fiction but started policing it. Um, in other words, they started taking down stories mm -hmm. that they felt. Um, their advertisers would not like, such as uh, explicit stories. Um, and basically, I sort of posted a, a manifesto saying, you know, we have to build an archive of our own. If we don't build, you know, I, I'm a passionate member of the fan fiction community. There's um, there's a saying uh, called feel wall, which is fan fiction is a way of life. Fandom is a way of life. And I definitely consider that true for me. Um, and I feel very protective of the community because I remember how important it was to me as a writer finding my voice there and um, also just finding friendships there. It was such an important community for me growing up. And um, and so when I saw basically these companies sort of hovering, trying to get into this space, this content creation space, um, into the space where basically they could profit off the content being created by fan fiction writers who themselves do not sell their work and cannot sell their work um, because of the copyright law and um, who just share it freely is in a sort of gift economy and essentially trying to profit off the work of these writers who are almost all women, many of them young women. Mm -hmm. And it really quite, it pissed me off, you know? Um, and so I basically wrote this manifesto saying, you know, we need an archive of our own. If we don't build our own front door, somebody else is going to come and build it and they're going to stick ads on it and they're going to throw out the stories that they don't like and they don't care about preserving our work. If they run out of funding, they'll dump us and just go. Um, and we'd seen this happen many times. And I mean, we're seeing it more broadly. You know, you see something like GeoCities goes down and they don't care that they're trashing the work. You know, and admit it. Look, you know, you look at an old GeoCities site and many of them look terrible and you're like, ah, oh, what's the point? Why preserve it? But it's important. You know, there's a lot of personal history and there are I am an inveterate rereader myself. 
I hate, there is nothing that I hate more than when I want to reread a story that I enjoyed and I click the link and it's gone. Mm -hmm. Um, I hate that experience so much. (laughs) And so that was one of my big motivators that um, I basically said, we need to build this and who's going to do it and I'll help. And there was like crickets, chirp, chirp, chirp. <laughs> and, and so I said, all right, all right, fine. I'll, I mean, it wasn't actually crickets, chirp. Everybody else jumped in and said, yes, I'll help too. And then we're all of us saying, we'll help. And I realized that basically I had to get off my butt and do it. Um, so I gathered um, a team of about uh, of seven women who are first board. And we put together the structure of the organization. Um, We got it incorporated as a not-for-profit with the help of many volunteers, um, including lawyers who did pro bono work for us. Um, We then put together, and I basically put together a team of developers um, from the fan fiction community, some of whom basically were trained within the organization and uh, and basically joined us in putting together the archive of our own. And that organization is now thriving. Mm. Um, the archive gets something like 15, it's probably up to 16 million hits a day. Um, and, you know, millions of unique visitors and has more than 400,000 stories, 4, 4, more than 400,000 users, registered users. Um, millions of stories and it's doing what I hoped which is it's preserving works that would otherwise be lost it's providing a home you know it um, basically when if we get a C&D or D- DMCA complaint um, we actually look at the work in question they don't just yank it down um, they actually evaluate it and you know if somebody says you know, take this down. You've put up, somebody has somebody has uploaded the uh, PDFs of the nine Harry Potter books. Sorry, wait, no, seven Harry Potter books. <laughs> I'm losing my. You know, has put up the seven PDFs of the Harry Potter books in full text. Um, we're like, okay, we'll take that down then. But if somebody says, you know, I don't like the fact that you've written a fan fiction story about my universe, um, in which you put these two characters together, we're like, nope, too bad. You were talking about getting together this group of women for for this site, and you've also you know, we're talking about designing computer games. There's been a lot in the news about uh, discrimination against women, either in computer games. Have you did you experience any of that, or even in even in some of the, uh, the I, fan you know, magazines? Sorry, I, I didn't experience um, direct discrimination. In fact, uh, in many ways, I experienced the opposite, which is people were very welcoming to me um, and very happy to have me in the room. Um, however, I absolutely experienced the, uh, I, I was the, I was the only woman in the room many times. And there, that is not a deliberate discrimination, um, but it has many negative side effects. Um, and the other piece is, of course, I, I am a woman, but I am also enormously privileged in that I grew up with two parents who were both computer scientists. Mm-hmm. Um, because my parents were educated in the Eastern Bloc, they actually had a much better math and science education. Um, and that was emphasized a lot more strongly for men and women. So when they came over here, my mother was actually a professor of mathematics. They both went into computers. And, um, and so that was routine for me growing up. Um, I also had, you know, the benefit of having, um, a, you know, a white middle-class safety net behind me and uh, an Ivy League education um, and a lot of support 
you know, just for thinking of myself as as really good at math, really good at computers um, from an early age. And, you know, all of that means that I essentially was armored in many ways against the sort of subtle discrimination. And there's also the other piece, which is I consider myself an extremely assertive person. And I am quite actually, I, I in fact have many of those same sort of geeky traits, which is I'll talk over people, you know, in a conversation automatically. I'm, I'm perfectly happy to jump in there. And, um, and those are traits that are actually welcomed um, in, the, in the sort of geek community. And the problem is that um, a lot of women are punished for having those traits growing up and are taught to be more conciliating um, and in fact, you know, and so there are all sorts of other separate little things, which is that the computer game industry in general um, not is not just bad for women and minorities, but I think that if you think of like women and minorities as kind of the canary in the coal mine, almost, um, if you can't, if they can't survive in an industry, there's probably something wrong in the industry. And I don't just mean sexism. Um, I mean that, you know, the industry is full of guys being worked 100 hours a week. Um, being unable to have any kind of life and being told that this is actually like some kind of machismo good thing um, when that's actually terrible. You know, most most guys who go into programming or um, even startups, computer games are not going to be the Mark Zuckerbergs who hit it big and walk away with a billion dollars. Um, most of them are not even going to be the little winners who walk away with $10 million or a million dollars. Um, if you're you're working like like a dog, basically, um, on a startup, most startups fail. And those aren't the ones you hear about. And um, a lot of computer game publishers go out of business or go bankrupt because they can't, it's not a sustainable model. Yeah. Um, a lot of people feel like, I've got this brilliant idea for a game, I'm going to make it work. But it's not, it's not a sort of viable company. Like you can't, you know, you, you put everything for that one success but you've got to be able to plan on like nine failures in one success. And what if you have to build nine games, nine failed games before you get to your one big hit? You know, a lot of companies just don't last that long. Okay. So, uh, you know, I, I definitely believe that there are serious problems um, that need to be corrected, not just in terms of getting women and minorities into the industry, but in making it an industry that you can work in and still be human being and have a life. Mm. Um and I feel that, you know, part of fixing that is getting rid of that kind of culture of machismo, um, which is actually, you know, used to exploit young guys. Um, and, you know, so the reason that also that, a, that an industry can afford to ditch women and minorities is because they're getting 100 hours a week out of the one person, you know, they do get. Um, and... It's just so. So I feel like there's a more systemic problem, as well, that needs to be fixed. Um, I do say that you know that um, you know I, I feel like you hear it called programmer environment um, is is a really awful one um, to come into if you are as many as as most of the women programmers that I know are interested in building stuff and don't necessarily know how to get started. Um, you know, there's that kind of culture of, of expecting people to take being criticized nastily 
um, and expecting people to take to take nasty criticism and expecting people to go and do it themselves, mm-hmm. which is actually not a great way to learn anything um, and not a great way to build anything. Um, and it is it can be a very good way to build your own individual skills. Like if you're somebody who who like gets slapped around in the face and you're like, I'm going to come back at you and prove that I can do it, um, then it's that can be actually quite powerfully motivating that sort of challenge if you were somebody who's like whoa okay you don't want me in this room i'm gonna i'm gonna leave i'm gonna go over there um then uh you know it's like why why should i fight to be in this room there's this really nice room with a party and there's drinks i'm gonna go there um you know if you are you have that actually much more sensible um uh mindset it's it's a toxic environment um, and it's a toxic experience to have. And I think that we were very um, happy at the archive that, you know, as a, as a result, as a reflection of the community that was building the archive, mm-hmm. you know, we, we had to build it. We needed volunteers. We couldn't pay anyone. So the only people who were willing to do it were the people who wanted that end product, um, who were themselves fanfic writers and readers. And most of those are women. So, you know, we had women sysadmins, we had women coders, we had women program, you know, uh, project managers, we had women designers. Everybody ended up being women because that's the population of the community we were drawing from. Mm -hmm. And it creates um, an environment where that was warm, that is warm, that encourages people who are new, um, that welcomes people who are... um, who are willing to kind of listen to users, um, listen to each other. Um, and it was a really great, it, it's a really great environment. Um, I don't have much time myself to, to work on it right now, but, uh, but it's still, you know, it, it's still a community full of women. There are also men who've joined us um, over the various years and who are also great. Um, but, I think that we've kept that same environment. And I think, frankly, it's a nicer environment to work in for everybody concerned. So uh, alternate history, reworked fairy tales, fan fiction. Is there a central philosophy for you that's underlying all the different ways that you transform or respond to existing works and existing facts as well as fiction? You know, I guess not necessarily to me it's it's extremely natural um I think to just to talk back to things that I take in. I actually generally don't want to watch media unless I'm going to respond to it in some way. I don't I I want to I want to be in a conversation with with stories. I don't believe in sort of stories standing on their own. Uh, I think that's sort of a strange myth. Um, you know, I, I actually wrote a piece recently talking about how in fan fiction, the desire to make art is married to the desire to to please an audience of whom you consider yourself a member and to whom you're intimately connected. Yeah. And I think that that's precisely because in the fan fiction community, you cannot sell works. Your only your only sort of reward is the feedback of other readers and the stories that they then write for you, which you yourself want or else you wouldn't be a fan fiction reader in the first place. And being a part of that tradition, of that particular literary tradition, I think, teaches you to to actively want your readers to be happy. 
and as opposed to to want to um and i don't mean happy in a kind of like disney way where yes everything has to have a happy ending and everything has to be sunshine and roses and nobody ever has a problem which is boring that does not actually make a reader happy i mean satisfied like satisfied by a good meal um and and I think that in the fan fiction community, in that tradition, learning to sort of feel that you are part of the audience for whom you are writing and learning to write um, sort of what you really want, kind of letting your id out on the page and then turning it into something um, and, and then sort of taming it in a way into a coherent story. And that is that is something that I think happens in that community really effectively. And I think that that's one of my own desires as a writer is to try and please myself to try and please the reader and not as opposed to, as opposed to necessarily sort of showing off how clever I am. That is never, I'm never thinking when I write, um, you know, is this going to make me look smart? Is this going to make me look interesting? Because I don't, really care. I mean, I'm like, I am smart. I am interesting. And what I care about is, am I having a good time? And I want the reader to have a good time. And that's, that's kind of, I think, my main, my main driving force as a writer. We've been talking with Naomi Novik, and you can find her book Uprooted in stores right now. Naomi, thank you so much for joining us. Thank great. you. It was wonderful. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Sarah Fort, author of Sprouted Kitchen Bowl and Spoon, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Next week, we'll be at Book Expo America. When we get back, we'll have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for brand new episodes giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 